Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, I've got a good question for you on this Martin Luther King weekend, and that is, can the United States ever get past its racist beginnings, what many people call our original sin? When we look around, it's easy to despair. I mean, how many committee meetings and how many cities have occurred since the murder of George Floyd? That's easy to despair when you think about it. And how many young people of color have died since? Yet, we are not a people of despair. Uh, the climate crisis, racism in America, broken systems, unjust systems, we keep hoping and we keep working because we believe that human beings can fix human problems. And we ask, what can we do? Well, it's time for us to embrace that kind of commitment as we look at the Martin Luther King Day weekend. And then we can ask, what can be done? After all, we do believe in evidence, and so here is some evidence for you that uh, we can look at from pediatrics nationwide. Researchers have shown that babies of color are just as likely to experience bias as adults of color. But very young children don't interpret that experience in the same way as older children do. Children become aware of differences in physical characteristics of human beings, says this article, when, by the time they're three years old. They notice differences in sex, male, female, height, weight, hair texture, skin color, and so on. They see difference. These differences in physical characteristics are all normal. Uh, they're just part of our human variations. Uh, as we go along, but by this age of three, we are aware of them, and by age four, children are aware of the social context of race. By age four, they begin to recognize their own racial group and those of others. Depending on home and community experience, they may start to discriminate between certain variations of people, and they even choose playmates, some kids, according to those biases and differences. Children at four years of age are still in the early stage of racial identity development, where children of color tend to relate more to the dominant culture. Here in the United States, uh, you know what that is, it's white culture. This is called the pre-encounter phase of racial identity development for children of color, says Dr. Spinks Franklin um, in this article. Now, children by the age of nine become aware of their racial group's status within the larger society. Before, they just knew there were differences. Now they know where the status levels are, up, down, etc. For children of color, this is called the encounter phase. 
By this age, children are aware of their group, how their group is treated unfairly or differently, or if their group is in a position of power. The encounter phase is a big developmental leap because it occurs during many other aspects of identity development, including gender identity development. So that's what I want you to think about today. Notice that children at age nine years become aware of their racial group status within the larger society. And that's what I'm getting at today. Yes, we all know that race is a social construct, and we also know it is a damaging social construct. Further, most kids figure it out by the age of around four and figure out the social implications of that by the age of nine. This needs to be said. Whether family and teachers talk about it or not, kids have already got it figured out. So we ought to talk about it as parents, and I will come back to that in a bit. Well, my uh, bags are all packed. I'm wearing my Johnny Cash traveling clothes today. I'm flying to Atlanta, Georgia later in the afternoon. The Minneapolis downtown senior clergy have planned a civil rights tour for this coming week, something we're calling the pilgrimage, an interfaith civil rights journey. Now, I consider myself very fortunate to be invited along with this august group on this journey. And I'm invited because I represent you. So thanks a lot for allowing me to represent you on this trip. Tomorrow, Monday, MLK Day, we will be at Ebenezer Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta. That's where both Martin Luther King Sr. and Martin Luther King Jr. served as senior ministers. And the current senior minister there, you may know, is U.S. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. <laughs> All right, yeah, absolutely. Now, President Biden will be one of the speakers, so it's a fairly hot ticket. People are camped out on the sidewalk, even as we speak, to get in tomorrow. Now, we downtown clergy are fortunate to get an invite to that historic church for that big event because the senior minister at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church here in Minneapolis, a wonderful young man by the name of Reverend Elijah McDavid III, has invited us. Elijah's grandfather, Reverend Elijah McDavid Sr., was an influential leader during the Civil Rights era, one of the inner circles uh, uh, for MLK. Reverend Elijah has been kind enough to get us invited into the building on that day, and he's a person that I want to listen to on this trip on the question of race and what we can do coming up in the future. Now, by the way, all of you will be getting an invite to his church, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, in April, when we will be talking about the trip that we are about to take. Um, some of our churches, not us, have fairly deep pockets, and so we are going to take a videographer along to, uh, to do a documentary about this trip. Also joining in the trip is a friend of FUS that many of you know. That's Mikram Al-Amin. He's the imam at Masjid An-Nur, the, the uh, Masjid of Light, it means, in North Minneapolis. 
From a historical perspective, Makram's father and mother were leaders of the Nation of Islam back during the uh, civil rights days in South Chicago, and Makram continues to be one of the most important voices and influential voices on racial justice here in Minneapolis in our own time. Imam Makram is also someone I want to listen to on this trip and learn from him uh, on these questions. Now, also joining us is a new-ish senior minister from Plymouth Congregational Church. Some of you have seen uh, me talk with him. We did a, a, a conversation uh, back around Easter time of last year. Reverend Dr. Dwayne Davis uh, is the child of two ministers and one of 15 kids. All right? And he grew up in southern Mississippi. Um, now, he's somebody I want to listen to. He is on a commission here in town working on police reform. Uh, Reverend Davis grew up both black and gay in southern Mississippi. So I'd say that, you remember that thing about social status and realizing it? I'd say that somewhere along the, uh, the line, Rev. Duane said, you're black, you're gay, get out of here, quick, right? And... Fortunately, he lives here in Minneapolis now, and he knows a whole lot that I want to listen to. These are three leaders that I deeply respect, and I'm very honored to be with them on this trip, as with some other of our ministerial colleagues. We will be traveling to Selma, Alabama, if we can. Some of you have heard that Selma had a really bad tornado last week. Several people were killed in that area. Uh, we're still hoping to go, and if we do, we will be talking with the city council of Selma, and I will be offering them some money to help them out. Uh, and next week, next Sunday, we will have um, a, our special offering uh, here to raise money to donate to Selma. Uh, some of you have probably seen the footage. Uh, Selma is an extremely poor city. Uh, and it was very, very badly damaged. So we do hope to go to Selma. Now, when we go to Selma, we will be talking about people, some martyrs. Jimmy Lee Jackson uh, was a young man murdered uh, by the Alabama police. Uh, he was the reason the Selma uh, activity began. Uh, so we'll be talking about him. And also, as many of you know, we UUs have two martyrs to the cause of voting rights in Alabama from 1965. Uh, one of them was the Reverend uh, James Reeb, who went there as a young man. I think he was about 25 when he was killed. Uh, here he's pictured with uh, Dr. Ralph Abernathy, and those are Abernathy's three kids that he's holding the hands of. And of course you see MLK and Coretta Scott King behind him, sort of before MLK became the MLK that you see in the historical pictures, right? But there, there he is. And Reverend Reeb was murdered by white uh, supremacists uh, in downtown Selma in 1965. Now, things you can't make up, right? This, uh, he was from... Casper, Wyoming, so, <laughs> right? A white guy from Casper, Wyoming, but he did give his life for this cause. Also, uh, we will be remembering Viola Liuzzo, who was a UU layperson. Uh, she was shot by the KKK as she drove Selma marchers back from the march uh, to Birmingham. We forget in history, you gotta march there and how are you gonna get back? Well, she was driving people back. A white woman 
with black people in the car, and so they shot her uh, through the windshield with a double-barrel shotgun. As always with history, the story is considerably more complicated than the thumbnail histories that come down to us. You just can't make movies about everything. Some of you attended a memorial service here for FUS member Bill Weir a, a few months ago, several months ago. He too went to Selma in 1965 as a young minister, and I told the story at that time that in the confusion of that time period, Bill's wife got a call from the Unitarian Universalist Association office in Boston that Bill had been shot and killed in Selma. Now, he got back home and walked in not having realized he had been reported murdered. Uh, so that was a little bit surprising, but such was the confusion of Selma in 1965. These were really brave human beings. Dr. King knew he was a marked man from that time forward. He was 35 years old in the picture that you saw, and he was murdered at age 39. Uh, yes, he would be 94 uh, tomorrow uh, had he lived. And yeah, most of us who remember those days are getting on a little bit in years, but we remember those days if we were somewhere around. We in the United States still have not atoned for our original sin of racism. And again, I have to ask that question, how many young people of color have been tortured and murdered since the death of George Floyd? And when I read the news about the tornadoes last week, uh, you know, I just thought of the poverty of that area. It's an extremely poor part of the United States. Selma is in what is known as the Black Belt, that's come to have two different meanings. The black belt, first of all, because of the quality of the soil. As a farmer, I know black dirt is the best dirt. It was also perfect for plantation agriculture. And so when you think of the plantations of the Old South, you're probably thinking of things in that area. After the Civil War and the end of legal slavery, the counties in the black belt of of Alabama, and there was a little bit of the Black Belt goes on over into Georgia and on over into Mississippi. They, the majority of people were African American, and the same, of course, was true in the Mississippi Delta. The brutality and open suppression of African American personhood was open there because whites were outnumbered. But guess what? They were all in positions of power in government, and in those days, no black people were there, and that's why they were being prevented from voting. Another thing that needs to be said is that the Black Belt is still one of the poorest places in the United States. People there are still waiting for that solemnly promised uh, 40 acres and a mule, and it still hasn't arrived. I suspect that most Americans, if I ask you, just, you know, what's the poorest place in America? You would say Appalachia. Well, you probably know that because it's white and the black belt is predominantly African-American. Racism, it's just built into the way history is taught and the, unfortunately the way so many of us think. So, remember the black belt. Now, life is really strange, I have learned to, uh, to know. Uh, 
you know that may, maybe know that I've been lecturing at the men's lectures, and one of the things that I've been talking about with those, I've done two of three at this point, is about the intersections of religion and race in the United States. And one of the things that I've talked about is my own experience during the civil rights years living in the South, mostly the Deep South, when I was a little kid. And yeah, by nine years old, I did know the, so, the social structure. Um, but despite that, I was attending integrated churches at that time. Now, how the heck could that be? How could it be that when people were getting killed in the South for simply sitting next to each other, how did we have integrated churches? Well, for one thing, we Pentecostals were super poor. So we were outside of any kind of power structure. So basically nobody even noticed us. And I'm sharing with you a contemporary uh, picture. This is a sign. I don't think Minneapolis uh, city code would allow this sign for FUS, probably. But this is uh, from uh, today, from the Dolly Pond Church. It's on the border of Tennessee and Georgia, and it's a Pentecostal church. Now, how do I know that? And how did we find each other back in those days? Well, the sign tells people what they're doing inside that building. And I will give unto the keys of the kingdom of heaven, says the verse. And there are three verses. They're all basically about, hey, you can have the keys to heaven, right? And so what is going on inside that church? Well, it's Pentecostal, we know, because of the miracle of salvation, the sign says, with signs following, with signs following following. And that tells those of us who know uh, that uh, oh, they're speaking in tongues, they're getting slayed in the spirit, there's miraculous healing and exorcisms, and they're dancing in the spirit and generally wholly rolling around. Well, in the early 60s, that's the kind of integrated church that I was attending as a very little kid. Why? Well, because of Pentecostalism. No, the Universalists and the Unitarians did not achieve integration in 1965 or certainly in 1904, but the Pentecostals did. The Azusa Street Revival was 60 years before the Civil Rights Movement, 60 years previous. Most people who look at the photos now probably don't see how radical the, these photos are. Maybe you have to have been nine years old in the Deep South like me to really see what's so interesting about this. Maybe you had to grow up in the Jim Crow South. But a photo of a black man sitting while white men are standing is impossible in the American South. That is a lynching offense. That black man is William J. Seymour. Now, chances are you haven't heard of him unless you've been listening to my men's lectures because we don't really talk about him in this country because we have a very racist narrative going on here. But William J. Seymour created the Pentecostal movement that is now the fastest growing religious movement on the planet. He needs to be known about. In photos of the Azusa Street revival period, we see black and white people sitting down together. Black and white people, men and women sitting down together. 
This is 1904. This is the height of the lynching era here in the United States. Yet in photos, you see a black man sitting beside a white woman and a little white girl. Impossible. Lynching offense. Yet here they are, human beings sitting together. And some of them, if you look closely, you can even see that they're smiling a little bit. Something else you didn't do in 1904 for a photograph. And in my mind anyway, I'm thinking one of them just said, God is mightier than old Jim Crow, right? White supremacists were, were chewing their teeth, as we say down south, when they saw this kind of thing. Now, this did occur in Southern California, by the way, the Azusa Street revival. And then from California, they bring it back to the deep south. My parents, married in 1950, were married by a woman minister, a Pentecostal woman minister. It was a thing that happened. Now remember that I mentioned that, that Reverend Dr. Dwayne Davis, who's going with us on the trip, is a child of two ministers? Well, as a Southerner, I don't have to ask why that is. Given his age, it's because Brother Dwayne it was raised Pentecostal. His mother was a preacher. Uh, now, how could a bunch of poor, uneducated people achieve something that we still haven't accomplished in this nation over a century later? Well, that's what I'm talking about in those men's lectures. But the, the simple answer is they believed in their Bible, as we would say. And Galatians 3.28 is where they got it. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. All right. Now, remember that handwritten sign earlier that said miracle of salvation with signs following. Brother William J. Seymour, now and I should mention that Pentecostals don't use the, the reverend honorific. We're all just brother and sister. We're all on an equal plane as, the, as part of the idea. Brother Seymour, the child of formerly enslaved people from southern Louisiana, okay, believed that salvation implied the loss of racism and sexism. If you brought it to Jesus, you were over your racism and your sexism. You were healed of the sin of racism and sexism if you were touched by the Holy Ghost, as we called it back in those days. Now, the title of my talk today is What We Can't Say, What We Don't Say, and What We Need to Say. Now, I'm going to tell you something that almost nobody knows, but it is something I think that needs to be said. Paul, as in, you know, St. Paul, the guy they named the city over there after, right, was a good writer, and he was a very strong philosopher. Now, Many Christians think that's because God was whispering in his ear. I don't happen to think that. I think he had a really good education. He was trained as a rabbi, first of all, but he was also trained in Stoic philosophy. When Paul wrote Galatians 3.28, he was using a Stoic concept known as covenantia naturae, which means a covenant with nature. Covenantia naturae. Now that's the Latin, and if you want to listen to me another 25 minutes, I can tell you how the Hebrew and the Greek add up to that, but that's, that's a footnote for another time. 
For the Stoics, we human beings must realize that we're born into covenantia naturae. We automatically have a covenant, an agreement with nature because we were born in this place, in this nature, all right? We are part of it, intimately so. Now, what does all that mean? It means that we're very much a part of nature and we must live according to the laws of nature. That's part of the covenant. It means getting outside of our subjectivity and those bad messages that we pick up by the time we're nine years old. We have to get out of those and get in covenant with what's actually happening in nature. We have to realize what it means to be human, that all humans are human, we have to know what it means to have consciousness and, and what our obligations are because we have consciousness. We can make decisions. And it means that we must be. We must be part of the warp and the weft of all of nature, that mutuality that MLK talked about. Now, four-year-olds and nine-year-olds know a truth that we too soon forget. It's all social convention. Nature says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female because all those concepts are human social constructions. What they mean. You got to do this. You got to do that. No. Nature says this is what you have to do. Right? The early Pentecostals figured that out. They left those pernicious human prejudices and stereotypes outside their church doors. Yes, they could die out in school if they did that, but in the church doors, they got over those sins. And that's how I grew up as a white kid in the early 1960s, attending actually integrated churches where white men, black women were the preachers and spoke to us. And we listened to them because God was speaking. Right. That's how we got there. And here's the spiritual truth that both St. Paul and William J. Seymour knew. And you can learn this spiritual covenantal truth as well. All of us can leave the lies that our society tells us outside the church doors. And indeed, outside our lives nowadays because those martyrs died in Selma. It's hard work. No, we're not going to be able to escape the constant messages of difference, of suspicion, even hatred of each other. Those voices are everywhere. Those structures are everywhere. But I'm here to say that some human beings have managed to love despite all of it, and we can Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.